second season of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. My name is Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we'll tackle Satoshi Kon's final feature-length film, the psychedelic sci-fi blockbuster, Paprika. Season 2, Episode 14, Rolling. Like many great thrillers, Paprika begins with a crime. Detective Toshimi Konakawa is trying to capture a fugitive. After a typically Kon genre-hopping chase sequence, Detective Konakawa fails, and an innocent bystander is shot in the process. It turns out the failed arrest is a recurring dream and a symptom of a traumatic anxiety disorder. Konakawa is receiving dream therapy from a mysterious dream detective, a woman who calls herself Paprika. Paprika is illegally performing therapy using a machine called a DC Mini. In her day-to-day life, outside of the dream, the bubbly and effervescent Paprika is no-nonsense research scientist Dr. Atsuko Chiba. Dr. Chiba works at the Institute for Psychiatric Research, where the DC Mini is in development as a prototype. Not long after, she's called into a meeting alongside her coworkers, Dr. Tosaku Tokita, a rotund and young at heart inventor who created the DC Mini, as well as Dr. Totaru Shima, her eccentric supervisor, as well as Dr. Morio Osani, a total creep who has always had a thing for Dr. Chiba. The meeting is led by the Institute's wheelchair-bound chairman, Seijiro Inui, who is concerned that a DC Mini has been stolen. Why is it important that Inui is in a wheelchair or that Tokita is a big dude? We'll get to it. Before that, and before Dr. Chiba's co-workers suspect her of being Paprika, Dr. Shima begins babbling nonsense and then throws himself out of a window, nearly ending his own life. Shima, it turns out, is the victim of a terrorist who is using the DC Mini to invade people's dreams and manipulate their behavior through their subconscious. Tokita enters Shima's dream, successfully recovering his mind. When he does, he sees a bizarre parade of wild objects. This is the terrorist's invasive dream. Among the parade, he recognizes his assistant, Kai Himuro. The theft was an inside job, and Paprika is on the case. Before anyone can apprehend Himuro, though, two more scientists fall prey to the dream parade, prompting Inui to ban use of the prototype. Ever the good doctor, Paprika returns to help Kosuke with his therapy with her working DC Mini. While she's gone, Tokita enters Himuro's dream and falls under the Dream Parade's sway, losing his mind. The Dream Parade then invades Paprika and Konakawa's therapy session, prompting Paprika to leave Konakawa alone while she tries to help Tokita. Once inside Himuro's dream, she discovers his mind is basically a hollow shell. He's been more or less a hand puppet for the real terrorist, Inui, who sits at a place of honor in the dream parade. 
Inui's plan is to subject every human being in the world to his dream, which he has lucid control over, effectively making him god. Inui gives chase, but Paprika evades him until she's captured by Inui's right-hand man, Osani. With Paprika pinned down in a dream prison, Osani peels her facade away and reveals Dr. Chiba's secret identity. Before his escalating molestation can continue, Osani is stopped by Inui, who has taken up residence in his subconscious. Inui wants Dr. Chiba finished off and apparently wants Osani's able body for himself. That's when Detective Konakawa, remember him, swoops in to save Dr. Chiba. The detective lures Osani into his anxiety dream, where Osani takes the place of his dream gunman, shoots him, curing his anxiety and also killing Osani's body. With his prize out of reach, Inui's subconscious goes into overdrive, and the dream train begins spilling into the real world. With the barrier between mind and matter dissolving, Paprika and Chiba separate into different entities. Tokita's corrupted subconscious eats Chiba and threatens to do the same to Paprika. Before he can, though, Chiba appears as a phantom, admitting her long-repressed romantic feelings for Tokita, which brings him back to his senses. At that point, Dream Inui materializes in the real world in giant form and attempts to consolidate his power and ascend to literal godhood. Paprika, Chiba, and Tokita's dream selves fuse into their own dream deity, a goddess representing Paprika and Chiba's split psyches reconciled into one being. The ascended Paprika eats Inui, ending his nightmare, then fades away as the difference between fantasy and reality is restored. Back in their bodies, doctors Tokita and Shiba admit their feelings in a lucid reality. Not long after, Detective Konakawa gets an email informing him that they're married. Then he goes to the movies. Howdy, human instrumentaliteers. Joseph Schaefer here. And I wanted to let you know that even though we're getting to the end of this season, there's no reason to feel perfect blue. We're working on another mailbag episode to wrap up Satoshi Kone's Bizarre Adventure, and Ian and I would love to get your questions about Kone, anime, or anything in general. We will answer those questions on the air, so send your queries by email to humaninstrumentalitypod at gmail.com before December 1st, 2022 to participate. And if you love our fine-tuned anime discourse but don't have any questions... You can still support us for $1 a month by going to patreon.com slash human instrumentality pod. It comes with monthly bonus episodes. And for $5 a month, you'll join the bridge crew and I'll read your name at the end of the episode. Thanks and sweet dreams. All right, Ian, we have finally reached the premature yet still overdue and bittersweet end to Satoshi Kon's Bizarre Adventure. When we started doing the second season of this podcast, I had short hair 
Uh, and now, as of this morning, it officially takes two hair ties to put my hair into a ponytail. <laughs> I, I don't I don't look if I put a baseball hat on, I don't look like Shonen Bat anymore. Now I look like Gene Simmons is trying to be incognito, which says something about the quality of my hair. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's like, are you approaching Satoshi Kon length hair? You know, like, have you gone from being just a fan to emulating one of his characters to emulating the man himself? Like, has that been your arc from start to finish with this podcast? When I brush my hair, I am jealous of Satoshi Kon's beautiful, shiny pin straight hair. Mm hmm. But how, however, I, I, I love my locks the way they are. I don't actually want pin straight hair. It's just I don't like the knots, right? That said, it's funny because Satoshi Kon sort of has a cameo in Paprika. Right and here, short hair. Short, short hair, hair Satoshi Kon. So he's done the reverse. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're going, we're, we're crossing uh, the asymptote, right? That's the right. middle line, right? The asymptote, mm -hmm. right. There we go. Well, yeah, I, I know that like... At the start of this, I think both of us made clear that we had some reservations of exactly how much enthusiasm we were going to bring to certain parts of this podcast. You know, sure. I, I think I started off thinking I was going to be much more critical than I've ended up being. And I know you, you kind of came in with a lot of reservations about most of his body of work, if I'm like remembering correctly, but I'm curious now, I mean, obviously we still have to talk about Paprika itself, but how are we feeling like as we're we're gearing up for the final movie? It, it's hard not to talk here, especially because it was final movie. And we're talking about like, what do we think about his filmography as a body of work? Right. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to, to think about that and say that, you know, Satoshi Kon died after Paprika came out. He was too young. We all I, I think anyone can say it's a tragedy. He was too young. And th that he's not still making films, I think, is like a loss. Mm -hmm. Not just to like, not just to anime, not just to anime cinema, so to speak, but to like, to like film as a medium. Mm -hmm. I, I think like the lack of, of Satoshi Kon being out there doing things like Paprika is a, is a big loss, right? Whereas when he died, all I thought was, oh, that's sad. Perfect Blue was dope, mm -hmm. right? Which is weird because I actually like Millennium Actress more, but still Perfect Blue pops up first. Right. My As you said, job description. His job description is Blue. director of Perfect Blue. Um, <laughs> hey, good for you. You've got good for him. He had a calling card, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Some people never get a fucking calling card. So good for him. I am warmer on his body of work. Yes. At now, now that we've reached the end, I am warmer on his body of work. That that said, I do I do still sort of feel that there is like a school of thought that kind of lionizes the man that I think does not reckon with some of the sim, some of the actual simplicity of his work. That said, yeah. you know, we're talking about paprika, which is in a lot of ways, his most straightforward thing. And is probably like the most fun I've had, right? Like yeah. it's not the thing that's brought me the most joy, but it's definitely the thing that is the most fucking fun. Right. In the words of the movie itself, the battle has ended. Now it's showtime. It's showtime. <laughs> is that uh, a big O reference? I don't know. I mean, it's a, it, this is a movie littered with references to stuff. Like, what's the expression? Like, throw a cat? Why do people throw cats to, like, hit things? So you can't swing a cat without 
bumping into something. Why are you swinging a cat? Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, you, I have you, a cat. I don't know. No, don't hurt my poor babies. <laughs> you can't. Yeah. You cannot like step any in any direction and not stumble across a reference to another movie in this movie. Right. It's everywhere. It's, it's so postmodern. It's so mm-hmm. postmodern, <laughs> right? But it, it, that is that is like part of the fun. It like it doesn't seem as like. I think there was definitely like a, a time in Cone's career where it kind of seemed like he had a little bit of a stick up his butt, and like mm-hmm. in Paprika, it seems like it's like this that has been dislodged. Yeah, <laughs> it's an open channel now. Yeah. It is an open channel, exactly, and I like that. I like that about it. Right. Yeah, you're right. It is a movie that is having a really good time. Uh, it's a movie that I think wants you to have a really good time. And it's it's kind of the movie that I think is like the least. It's, it, you know, it, it, it picks up a lot of the threads that we talked about with Paranoia Agent. And then I think is like less lecturing about how to deal with them, you know, because like, so I'm thinking specifically of the theme of like repression. Right. And how Paranoia Agent is about a society that is, like, either repressing memories or repressing uh, desires or repressing their real feelings. And, you know, it causes this dark, disgusting thing to bubble up and swallow the entire city. In Paprika, we just, it is about diving in and uncorking all of those blocked up channels and, like, letting your freak flag fly, so to speak. It is a movie about seeing kind of like flipping that over and seeing like, oh, what is all this stuff that you guys are hiding in the in your subconscious? Let's actually take a look and like see it in the light instead of as like this malignant force. It's like actually like what are what are you what are you repressing? Like what are you weirdos thinking about all the time? <laughs> sure. Sure. It is it is a it is a movie where like Cone has had the stick removed from his butt. And the message of the movie is uh, take the stick out your ass, right. unless that's your thing. Unless right? that's if it's your, your thing. <laughs> if that's your thing, maybe you should just like own it, right? Mm-hmm. That that's sort of like the message of of if there is like a worldview to paprika, right? And and it it's not as scolding to me as Paranoid Agent is, right? Like, and I like Paranoid Agent much more on rewatch, but there is this sort of like finger wagginess to it. Mm-hmm. I think we'll we'll probably include a uh, a screen cap of a, a particular uh, letterboxed review that I think gets to the point pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. If you were to, I guess, how's this? If you were to, and it's hard because this is the end, which is the big problem with it. But I almost want to say, if you're new to Satoshi Khan, maybe start here. Yeah. Weirdly enough, this is probably like the most entry level. He get weirdly, I think like the two entry points are this and then perfect blue almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like you could go at it from either direction almost. Right. Which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Like it, it becomes a loop like Paranoia Agent where you can you can start at either end and you'll end up kind of in the same spot. Mm-hmm. 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 That's my take on it. And I remember I think maybe part of the reason why I feel that way is because like I as I think I've said earlier in 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 the podcast. Paprika is the thing that I was the least familiar with mm-hmm. going in, going into this. And that is because I, I, I think I probably have like gone two ways on this in the episodes. I can't remember if I've seen it or not. And what I think has happened was I believe it came out 
when I was in college my freshman year. And I think I, the thing I think happened is I think I went with a gal I kind of fancied and I think I got like nervous wasted beforehand. Mm. And so what I think is that I've now on rewatch, I'm like, I think I did see this. I think I just remember fucking none of it. Right. <laughs> right. Man, Paprika is a date movie that it's totally a date movie. Yeah. I mean, of of the cone films, it I would say it is it is the date movie. It's the it's the breezy summertime blockbuster of his movies. You right. know? When you when we were talking earlier about how Cone's death has left this sort of void and has left us like poorer in some respect, uh, in terms of like larger like the things that are missing from film, the things that are missing from anime. I also think that there's something missing from our own ability to see these movies for what they are because there's so few of them like Mm -hmm. we were talking at one point where i think paprika is so tricky to approach as a critic in retrospect because because it's the last one it feels so like there's so much at stake for kind of like well this is your one chance this is how you here's your chance to wrap it all up to see to look at cone's body of work in its completeness and this is the final statement and I actually think that does a real disservice to this movie because it's a movie that I think we would be able to appreciate better with knowing where his career went after it, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I, I get, it doesn't feel like an ending. It feels like a new beginning. Yeah. It feels like, like there's that super uncomfortable and we we'll, we should maybe talk, but there is that very uncomfortable scene. I think of, of like paprika's like skin getting like body horrid and like split open and like dr chiba getting pulled out of paprika's body in a way i think that scene is is sort of like i think con felt that like i feel like this movie is him being like i have shed the the i'm the perfect blue guy-ness of me and Mm -hmm. now i'm ready to just i feel like this movie was him being like I'm ready to be Satoshi Kon, dude who gives you fun fucking movies. Yeah, this could have been the second calling card because it could have been the start of his like, the movie he was going to make after this was like a movie for kids. You know, clearly mm-hmm. he was he was trying to move into lighter territory. And yeah, this movie, I think, does a good job of including a lot of the the darker themes and the, you know, as, as you said, yeah, that, that butterfly sequence is pretty fucked up. <laughs> yeah. But um, it is it is also like of a piece with all of the stuff that he's done previously. But he found a way to incorporate ideas from pretty much every movie he ever made. Like, and I, I'll include Paranoia Agent in that. Yeah. He, he found ways to include things that he did, you know, from all, all the three other movies and the TV show and to package it into a really tight, as usual very forwardly propulsive action sci-fi blockbuster. It's true. And his, his first thing with like a plot that I, that is like intelligible, like a running theme in this, in this podcast, his season has been my inability to write a good summary (laughs) of like anything he does. Mm -hmm. And actually Paprika was the easiest. Yeah. it's, It's a relatively like, easy plot it's like okay here's your main character she's got two sides to herself they're not split personalities they're like they're split identities right yeah he does he he spends the least time explaining exactly how this works which i think is nice because if you've watched through the body of work you kind of get the idea at this point right it's it's not like double lips where i'm sitting there and i'm like 
are you trying to like grapple with like disassociative identity disorder and just doing like an only okay job? This isn't that. Like he's like, no, it it's she's just got like two things. She just mm-hmm. does two things and they don't get along, right? So it's like, here's main character, here's your coworkers, here's the problem. Dream terrorists. What are we gonna do? Stop the dream terrorists. And like right. the movie is just like here's all the things that went wrong when we were trying to do that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's, it is interesting because I, I think it is the easiest premise to explain, maybe. Like, it right. is the, the hookiest little premise to... It's, yeah, it's like you explain that sort of concept to, you know, Marvel bro Johnson. Yeah. And <laughs> like he'll, he'll figure it out, you know? This, this almost could be a marvel movie in in that in that sense if it, if the superpower was like instead of tony stark throwing missiles it was like tony stark uses the internet to go into your dreams yeah yeah right? i mean well, it makes sense that there was an american blockbuster that i'm sure we'll talk about uh that used a very similar hook and was a huge goddamn movie that changed the way that every trailer has sounded since <laughs> it's <laughs> okay so do we want to okay Here's my question for you. Do we want to get rid of Inception first? Is that what you're asking? Or no, what I'm saying is, do we why don't we talk about the production first? Let's get it out of the way. Even though I think Mm -hmm. the production story on this one is actually like pretty interesting, but I feel like talking about the production is is a little bit obligatory. So like what I'm saying is why don't we get it out of the way? And that'll take us to Inception. And then we can talk about, you know, like I'd actually I think it might be better. We can talk about the movie and then talk about Inception. You want to do uh, that? Yeah. Okay. Because th- I'm sure we'll loop back around to Paprika after Inception, but I think it sure. will help for us to like actually talk about how we feel about Paprika first and then talk about a f- the film that came after it, you know? Okay. So to be clear, we're going production, film, Inception, or mm-hmm. film, production, Inception? Production, Warmer. film, Inception. Okay. So. How much did you going into this? How much did you know about like the process of making Paprika? Because I I think the story behind how this movie got made is sort of interesting. I knew it was adapted from a book. Okay. And I, from my understanding, it's not very similar to the book. Kind of sort of a perfect blue situation, but maybe a bit less extreme. It's, It's interesting that you mentioned perfect blue. Because, and I believe we covered this in the Perfect Blue episode very briefly, but Cone wanted to adapt Paprika right after Perfect Blue mm-hmm. and did, wasn't able to do it. It's a novel by a guy named Yasutaka Tsutsui, mm-hmm. who I guess is a quite popular sci-fi author in Japan, but very few of his works have been translated in English. Although I think Paprika is... Probably after the popularity of the movie, I would imagine. I think after I think that's I think that's right. The novel was published in 1993, and it was actually serialized in the Japanese version of Mary Claire. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. right. Neat. Yeah. Neat. Weird how much I, Mary Claire is like across the world has been influential on stuff that I like. You know. Now we can't we can't go down that rabbit hole right this second. But what does that say? I it, it, like, <laughs> are you a Mary Claire boy? Secretly? Who, maybe secretly. <laughs> secretly. Let's crack open these dreams and find out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So con wants to make it right after perfect blue. He's in talks. There's maybe a production company 
think they're called Rex Entertainment. I couldn't get a good citation for the name of the production company. Mm -hmm. But there was a production company that was interested in doing it, and then they tank. So he says, okay, fuck it. He's like, I'm going to put it, put that aside. He has some ideas, but he's like, going to put that aside, doing Millennium Actress, doing my thing. Right, right, right. Right. Cut to mid-Paranoia Agent. Mid-production. 2003, right? Khan goes to like an anime convention set up by Animage, probably to like let people know like you know paranoia agents coming out right right yeah, do some promo yeah mm-hmm. press flash etc and he meets tutsui there ah mm-hmm. and he's like yep he's like did you know i always wanted to do paprika and i guess tutsui's like that'd be dope we should totally do it <laughs> We should we should make that happen. So it, it gets set up like mid paranoia agent, mm-hmm. which is good. We talked about how like Cone's whole thing is like he wants his next project going before this one ends so he can keep working. Right. So he can keep getting paid, basically. And because the book was kind of a success, it was a thing that people knew. He got two and a half years to make the movie and a pretty big budget, like 300 million yen, which I think mm-hmm. is something like 30 million dollars. That's a lot. That's, that's a pretty, that's a real deal movie ass budget, you know. <laughs> it's a movie ass budget. It's it it exactly is. So he like uh, like Khan does. He brings back a lot of his close collaborators. But here here's the big marker, at least in Japan, of like this had a fucking budget. Is he uses like celebrity voice actors? Yeah, yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah. Which I, in watching like the Japanese version, I actually think does make a difference. Like I do remember like watching it be like oh. The performances are are very very good. They're good. They're really good, uh, because we've got characters, we've got actresses playing multiple characters. We've got people moving in and out of dream psychosis. The the right. it, it is the it is a very funny movie. So the timing has to be spot on, and the it, yeah, it is it's this is a real pro production of this of any of his movies. This is the one where you can tell like, whoa, yeah. Now that he's got the full arsenal, he's really going off. You can and you can tell like it looks so good. Like it looks those dream parade sequences. Yeah, they look ghibli good. Yeah, they, they really they do. they really fucking do. And I guess like the big star, I guess, is Megubi Hayashibara plays Dr. Chiba slash Paprika. We didn't talk about her last season, but she's Ray. Right. Yeah, <laughs> she's. She's like the big deal voice actress of like the 90s and 2000s, like into into now. She's also Faye Valentine. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw those notes uh, of like all the characters that you you mentioned that she's played, I was like, wow, she must be fucking rich. Like (laughs) she's she's still working, but I think she's doing good. She's also Hello Kitty. That's what I mean. (laughs) Yeah. What the fuck? Um, (laughs) Right. Here's I feel like if you're Hello Kitty, you must be like flow from progressive level rich. Like probably it's the only equivalent I can draw. I don't know. (laughs) So I don't I didn't know this, but did you know that she's so identified with Faye that in like the Netflix, the Japanese dub of the Netflix English first live action Cowboy Bebop, she does Faye's voice in Japanese. Wow. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. She. She. I guess she does like a lot of a lot of dubbing. Um. She was Drew Barrymore in the Japanese screen. Hmm. Well, that's not a particularly long role, but it does serve the same purpose of like famous person right. dies in the first you know fifteen minutes. Right. 
That I mean, yo, we should met, like drill into this. The fact that Faye and Ray are played by the same person, and I, you would never ever think that those are the same performance, like ever at all in the slightest. Right. Absolutely yeah. incredible stuff. Like incredible. I think stuff. we we should. You know, Ray is such a specific character from Ava that I know we we have our issues with with it, but like it is such a specific performance, and hearing all the kind of stuff that she's done in other stuff in, in other shows and other movies, I think helps me appreciate how specific the mannerisms and performances are for that character. You know? Right. You, you, you literally can't, it's hard to imagine anyone else as Ray and like Ray is like a star making. God, Mm -hmm. we can't get back into Ava. I'm sorry (laughs) that I did this. Like it. Cause we need, we do need to talk about paprika. Um, But like it's, it's big that it's big that she's paprika. Right. That is like a, a big asterisk on the poster in Japan that says, hey, fucking a right. Mm-hmm. We got Ray as the main character. You're going to get tons yeah. of her. Right. Yeah. yeah. And she gets to do both of her things in this movie because like right. Dr. Chiba is kind of like Ray, but not creepy. Like I'm very repressed. Yeah. Right? Very buttoned up. Very severe. Right. Know. And Paprika but also like lets a- people have it <laughs> like has a temper. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> that's the that. But that's like the Faye Valentine thing is like mm-hmm. you, you see her like do do the like letting spike have it is the same thing as, as her letting Dr. Uh, Tokita, Dr. Tokita have it. Yeah. Right. And at the same time, like, I feel like Paprika, the character is like a much more earnest version of like the Faye Valentine. I'm, I'm bubbly. I'm cool. I'm a cool girl thing. Right. I mean, both of them are in their own kind of ways, like certain, like playing on male fantasies. Right. Like Faye is doing it cynically and deliberately, which is why she's a fun character. Uh, right. And Paprika is, I can't, I mean, Paprika is, is she, is it cynical or is it earnest? Hard to say. Okay. Her, well, we're going to, uh, just kind of mysterious, but the, which is interesting character to, to ruminate over. We'll get into it. I'm sure, but well, continue. I'm sure we need to at the same time, Toru Furuya, who plays Dr. Tokita is Amuro from mobile suit gun. Uh, uh-huh. He's, so, so like that's a big that's a big that's like the Luke Skywalker of voice acting mm, in Japan. Mm, mm-hmm. So this is this is them getting I guess older Mark Hamill to do something off character in sure. like a main role which works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, Mark Hamill would actually be a great fit for that character because I don't know, like people people think of Mark Hamill's voice acting they think like the Joker or Ozu, the fire Lord, but that's just, he's just a good voice actor. He's just a good actor. Let right. him have fun. You know, <laughs> I, I love me a Mark Hamill performance. He's likely too old to do this now, but like, sure. Anyway. Yeah. Well, so, but 2006, I'm saying, you know, 2006. Yeah, that's right. Anyway. And, uh, Paprika does, uh, does well. It does well critically and commercially in Japan mm-hmm. and in America of all cons movies next to perfect blue. Paprika has like, I think probably like the, the most seal of approval. Right. Which, which goes back to like, it's weird. It comes out in 2006. This is not, we're no longer in like the post tsunami golden age. I think like the, the, the rose is off the bush. Is that, is that the, the bloom is the, off the rose and the, the rose bloom is, is off, off the, the bush. Rose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all thorns here except mm-hmm. for paprika. Again, I think it's weird that this was not like a stronger contender for best animated picture at the Oscars. Like this, like it seems like it, it had, there's a New Yorker review where they're like, 
animation isn't for kids. That's how you know it's no longer cool. If it's like the New Yorker's opinion, it's no longer cutting edge, right? right it may yeah. be correct, but it's no longer like neat to think that thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And the Which, New Yorker ran this article that was like, animation isn't for kids anymore. We've seen Paprika. And you know what? It's good. <laughs> Video games have come a long way since Pac-Man, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like, right. It's like, okay, we get it. Uh-huh. I just think like, it's funny. Like 2006, was that the, the same year that the New Yorker had the, the like Pelican, an article with like Pelican as the, the, the lead, you know, photograph on the front page of the art section is like metal for people that are smart. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is a little bit later, but yes. This yeah. th- we are this is yeah. So Paprika does have kind of that pelican yob, wolves in the throne room. Dur, what if not trashy? Right. They miss books too. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, uh Wolfgang Peterson wanted to well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, but Wolfgang Peterson did want to remake it in 2009. That didn't happen. For he's the guy who did Never Ending Story. That I mean that would have been sick. Like you, you tell me, like I mean, you say that and I want practical effects, Paprika, which is like, that's ah, probably not possible, but <laughs> no, that's <laughs> not going to really happen. Cool. <laughs> this is actually a movie that I think could only be adapted into live action now by Marvel, because at the very least, like their their CGI budget is is like stupendous. Right. Sure, like, yeah. but but I don't want that to be. I'm sorry no. I put that out in the universe. No, I don't. Absolutely want not. I mean, we've um, seen like their version of that kind of thing. And it's Doctor Strange. You know? She's like, sure, yeah, if I wanted to look at, like, Windows, you know, media player in the background (laughs) of uh, (laughs) fucking Sherlock doing Tai Chi, like, I, no, thank you. Okay, we can't even begin to talk about (laughs) my feelings on Dr. Doctor Strange. And yeah. and certainly Paprika does have its own multiverse of madness. Can't believe I looped that back around, but I did. Last thing about its release, it it screened in, screened at the Venice Film Festival in competition, which means mm. like it wasn't just like they like it, it's like we might give this a prize. Yeah. For for animation that's tough. And it was in competition with Katsuhiro Otomo. Wow, the student becomes the master. This mm-hmm. is so cool. This is this is him and that's like otomo's first like original full length it's steam boy which is Uh his first full length film of an original story since akira man so it and i my understanding is i mean here's the thing y'all know akira but if you're listening this have you ever fucking seen steam boy (laughs) right (laughs) right but you've probably heard of paprika yeah. Right. Yeah. It's certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. That says something. So at the very least, if this is the end of Cone's career, the, the student does exceed the master. I think formally, finally, on this movie. I mm-hmm. think that's I think that's interesting. So there, there you go. That's that's him level he leveled up here. I, I think this this brings up the first question that comes to mind, and I think this will be a useful way of talk like beginning to talk about the movie is why do you think this movie rather than the other follow-ups to perfect blue connected so much? Like, what is it about this movie that made the New York times say, you know, anime's come a long way since, you know, I don't know. Well, for one <laughs> thing, you can understand the fucking plot. Yeah. As we've I, already said, 
like mm. it, it's hard to underscore just how important that is to like this movie connecting with normal people sure i i would like to add the caveat though that i think it's the first movie of his that if you don't understand the plot you'll be fine yes that's yes i think we're we're, we're saying the same thing in different ways yeah right because there are a ton of details that you can miss like I don't think most people seeing this movie can walk away and tell me what uh, the villain's motivations are, for example. I don't think this movie does the, does the best job. Like, okay, so but it doesn't matter. Motivation is what I'm is saying, not, right? Yeah. Like, I, what I'm saying, I think the, the point I'm, I'm trying to make is that, like, you can lose a lot of the details and still experience Paprika and go, wow, that ruled. I'll yeah. have another place, you know? I, I think that's I think that is correct. I think I think the other thing is like um detective movies just are like such an archetypal film form mm-hmm. that they like connect to people. People like I think intrinsically understand, okay, detective find criminal. Right. I understand this plot, right? And you add the dream thing and it's like, oh, that's an interesting light sci-fi. Light mm. sci-fi twist. And I also think it like this movie is so well calibrated to the strengths of anime as a medium, but also people's conceptions of anime as a medium, you know? Right. Like yeah. the, the visual smorgasbord, you know, psychedelic bonanza, like the, the, the onslaught of just like weird and wacky shit that this movie throws at you, I think doesn't pander i think it gets by it honestly but does work well in its favor for say a western audience that expects wacky outlandish like bright colorful imagery from a cartoon you know yes and it's something that i think you can't you know as we as we the parade in particular Mm -hmm. it's the parade is the 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 iconic image from this movie for a lot of mm -hmm. people you know for me too, definitely while watching it, right? The parade is is like something you can't do outside of 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 animation. Good, and even I think, even I think like CGI is only now getting to the point where you can have like this much shit on screen moving independently that that is like intelligible yeah. in any kind of way, right? right. Like by 2006, what 2006 was only like a few years removed from so four years after two towers, you know? Right. And if two mm-hmm. towers was like the cutting edge sci-fi, uh, the cutting edge CGI of its time compare like Helm's deep, <laughs> right? <laughs> which, you know, I, I love those movies, but let's be honest about exactly what that looks like to the modern eye. Uh, it does not look like this sort of fidelity of image that you get with animation with something like paprika. I think there's also something to be said for the timing of, of this film. The bloom was off the rose, but it spirited away is close enough that even like Americans remember, Oh, spirited away was good. It was a thing. It was gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And I think this has got to be Howl's moving castles already come out. I can't, 2004, I I think 2004, I think. Yeah. Okay. And, and I I honestly think you're right. It's, it's, it is. It's the Miyazaki thing, because like you right. mentioned, the experience of being an anime fan in that like late two thousands zone is like, oh, everything that's on TV is is Bleach and Naruto, and what you feel the way you feel about that. 
but in in theaters like that was the decade where Miyazaki was like I'm just I'm running it back every year man I'm getting I'm putting up numbers on the board you cannot stop me like that's the imperial period you know it's it's I think it's right after for me or or no I mean we're still during but I think like Howl's Moving Castle is notoriously like kind of difficult like on purpose yeah you know like vibey like vibey movie but not really a plot one (laughs) vibey not plotty and also kind of mean right like Mm -hmm. i I don't think house moving castle is not like a fun watch most of the time right whereas so i think i think people were ready and this is what's so sad about it right because i think in 2006 mainstream critics were ready for there to be like an anime auteur who does who does films that like have a message but don't scold you and they look great and they kind of make sense and it's Mm -hmm. a little edgy but you could still see it like with your date it was perfect perfect take perfect time yeah well right it's interesting because i know i noticed in your notes that like the person who actually ended up getting that crown also put out a movie in uh in 06 where are you going with it what are you because you're i don't i don't see all the notes at the same time so where are you going where are you going with this Oh, you're talking about, I think, Mamoru Hosoda, maybe? Yep, exactly. Who does the, who does the Girl Who Leapt Through Time, mm-hmm. which is also based on a Tutsui novel, and was also being made by Madhouse at the same time. Yeah, Big year for like, that guy. <laughs> this, is his, this is his year, yeah. right? And he's also, I think now, as we're releasing this, he's just had another film that I think also screened in competition at sundance i think maybe like i hosoda is now the guy who's who's putting who's putting numbers on the board yeah and i think if we're gonna use the musical analogy like you know jay-z didn't become jay-z until after big l and biggie died you know that's a point i i think i don't know maybe i'm just kind of like bouncing off of what you said to me but it seems like that role of like fun high concept visually entertaining sci-fi ish anime hosted as the guy you know like that's him now yeah and he's still doing he's still he's just getting off of digimon before this right which is we can't even get into that right now that's like going into like the ava voice acting okay so we've this is why people like it Mm -hmm. this is how it got made sad that he's dead but like the movie itself Ian. And I yeah. think like, if you want to talk about the movie itself, let's talk about like the, the girl, right? Paprika. What's up with Paprika to you? What's her deal? I think this movie was both of its time for its content, but ahead of its time for its uh, awareness of its content. By which I mean to say that Paprika is literally a manic pixie dream girl you know this movie is is cringier now than it was when it came out for that reason depends on how you look at it because so we the opening sequence we get this opening sequence of uh detective uh Konakawa's, Konakawa. his dreams that take the, the shape of a bunch of old movies you got greatest show on earth got tarzan you got from Russia with love, sort of. That's basically. the that's the garot scene, yeah. right? Yeah, on the train. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And it's also Vertigo, like in yeah. form. Yeah, right. 
it's funny because I feel like other than the Tarzan one, it's like because I'm a Bond guy with the 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 circus thing. I was like, oh, it's Octopussy. It's like, no, it's not, dude. No, no one references Octopussy. <laughs> don't don't delude yourself, Ian. It would be Octopussy if someone attacked them with a giant buzzsaw yo-yo, which right. is dope. I am. I am vaguely pro octopusy, but also we can't get into it. Yeah. Um, maybe in a Patreon episode, we'll, yes. we'll run down the bonds. If you, if, um, seriously, I would love to have an opportunity to do this. I have takes. So <laughs> I mean, I'm into your octopusy takes, um, but not now. Not now. Yeah. I, so yeah, we, we, we open with this sequence of like an older man gray in his hair already dreaming about a bunch of classic movies. And Paprika's along along with him every step of the way, and then they he wakes up, and the sequence of the two of them in the hotel room. Yes, it's a therapy session, but it sure does look a lot like sex work. You know what is and what is the underlying? What does Cohn think of therapy? Right, I wonder when I watch this movie. I wonder, but I'm I'm sure that probably comes from the novel. I I think I don't know. But I think that this actually, again, sort of gets around to the sort of flippant point I made about Faye Valentine is how much of Paprika is, how much of her character is a a presentation to older male clients to help guide them towards a realization. So we only, we have two examples of that in the movie, right? We've got like uh, Dr. Shima talking about his own experiences in the past with- right you know, Dr. Chiba slash Paprika's form of therapy by which he recommends it to Konakawa. Right. And both of them literally like are talking in this sort of like old man at the barbershop sort of way about like, ah, woman of my dreams kind of thing. Um, Oh my God. A literal woman of your, okay. The word, I know it's English, but like the word play here betray. Anyway, but I think that's the I'm going to come back to that. I right. think I think it is the point that Paprika is doing a job that is service work in some way or another. It is in one way or another, her personality, her, her existence within the dream is to help uh, is is accommodating a certain kind of perspective. Does that also then lead to her being objectified by the the lens one step removed, say like Khan and by us? I do think so. A lot of conspicuous panty shots. That's for sure. This is a very panty shotty. In that way, it's the it's much more like Perfect Blue than Millennium Actress is. Mm-hmm. Like this is like a very panty shotty movie, and also it it must be said the pinned butterfly scene. There's just some light molestation in the middle of the movie. And it like that is like the one of the only scenes in like in like Khan's oeuvre where I'm like, you have seen La Blue Girl. Why? I mean, this movie is, I think, front to back, the horniest thing he ever put out. It's so horny. And it is it undergirds pretty much every character relation in one direction or another, everyone wants to fuck someone else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, the way that uh, Shima gets woken up from his, the dream that he gets trapped in is Paprika goes in there and basically fulfills like a bunch of fetishes for him. Right. 
So it starts where she transforms herself into what he describes as a feisty country girl. <laughs> and then like descends into his body and inflates him until he pops. And like, <laughs> that's someone's yep. fetish, you know? <laughs> like, For sure. And I think the movie's non-judgmental about all of this. And I think, well, we can talk about maybe it's, uh, it's feelings about homosexuality, but I think by and large, Paprika is treated with narrative respect and with a narrative understanding that like her character is a character. It is a fabrication of some kind. Well, I mean, you're, you're trying to bring up this, this point of like that there is something I'd say kinky in, in like, in like the idea of, of Paprika's job as a dream detective. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think kinks are sort of like a thing. This film is interested in. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And my interpretation of this is the Dr. Osanai character who performs the light but un uncomfortable molestation in, in the pinned butterfly sequence, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think my interpretation is what what Cohn's trying to say, and is sort of like this is sort of like his critique of Dr. Chiba as an alter ego, right? Is he's saying the whole stern, buttoned up doctor thing is also uh, a, front. a front it's and it's also yeah. someone's kink right it's dr osanai's mm. kink that's what he's yes. into right he yes he, you're so right right it which he, but he's not into it in a step on my throat kind of way he's in it in a like this is fun for me because i want to break it down kind of way which is bad right well but there's i think he kind of wants it both ways because mm -hmm. like it's not that he so the, there's a scene in the car when they're driving over to Himaru's apartment mm -hmm. where he's like, I'm, I'm jealous. Like, don't you understand that he's jealous of you, Tokita? I'm also jealous of Chiba. Right. Like, no nothing I can do will ever make me better than you. And then, like, he just has this wry smile on his face and he goes, I'm powerless. Oh, uh, right. It's, and, and maybe that's sort of like this movie's, like, like, issue with him in part that, like, beside that he's, like, a fucking office creep right yeah it's like you, you kind of can't have this both ways right mm -hmm. well it i think that you could see he clearly has like a fascination with people who are you know powerful more powerful than him in one way or another right because uh inui the the villain he sort of is like giving himself over to him literally physically and you know psychologically etc right I, I think like when he when osanai takes off the paprika form to reveal chiba yes it does reveal uh, have chiba's helpless in that situation which is obviously where a lot of the tension in that scene comes from but it's also that he doesn't want the childish bubbly effervescent manic pixie dream girl he wants to get his balls stepped on right i think that is the case yeah he's not david foster wallace yeah. Right. Okay. No. He's more. I don't know. He's more Thomas Pynchon. Thomas, I was gonna say JG Ballard. Um, right. Right. Yeah. My guys, not not DFW. <laughs> well, but that's why I, I I think that he does try and he does a better job of getting ahead of it than a lot of those like manic pixie dream girl Zach Braff, you know, indie movies of its time do. 
at least in my percent. Like it's better than 500 days of summer. Oh yeah. For example. No, no question. For me. <laughs> I, I agree completely. My, my issue is more that if we're talking about Paprika, the character beyond the literal manic pixie dream girlness of it, I think she's not the best drawn character in the world. The performance is great. Hayashibara does a lot with it. But I actually think this is a film where the, the B cast is probably a, a, a damn sight more interesting than her or Dr. Inoue, who is kind of like a faceless, maniacal villain. It's like, oh, I look like I look like Professor X or I don't like that I'm in a wheelchair, which is like weirdly judgmental about people who have who are differently yeah. abled. like. You know, the reveal of of him like turning the corner in the greenhouse and he's got like the the tentacle things is like cool. He's a very I love it. It's, it's so good. So cool. <laughs> he's a very cool villain imagistically. But yeah. he's a little paper thin. And and I, I, I think I hate to say it, but I feel like the whole Dr. Chiba paprika thing is also like a little thin to me. Mm-hmm. This movie, I think in general feels like a repeat performance by a lot of the cone repertory players Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. like you've got the like masculine detective you've got the woman who's two women you've got the normie who's secretly evil you've got the short weird looking guy (laughs) and then you've got evil personified as like a a weird creepy executive with strange opinions about other people's uh autonomy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very true you've got you've got a short weird guy whose thing is he's short and weird and into both those things about himself yeah <laughs> i love shima he's so fucking every time he's on screen i'm like this is like this is like a you can keep this anime stereotype yeah. provided <laughs> provided he doesn't go like full master roshi and jet blood out of his nose i'm into it um that stupid mm-hmm. grin when when chiba wakes up and slaps him <laughs> that's a very right. dragon ball z ass joke but it's it's it really is like well executed i think the fact that it's i think that it shows up there is almost a punchline of its own like you don't expect this movie to do something so dumb as that right <laughs> and then that it actually happens that way you're like oh i like i didn't expect a banana peel right for someone to slip on you know and that the, it's such a cl- it's it feels so like old school right and that and that Chiba's like responds to like seeing this happen she's like oh moving on um not addressing this at all which is perfect i think Mm -hmm. but in contrast to to dr chiba paprika which i think is like of the times that colin has like explored this dynamic i would call this sort of one of the weaker ones although well performed yeah well performed obviously there's the opening credits sequence which is Maybe the the single like best minute and a half of anything Cone's ever done, in my opinion. I I it's just the the combination of the music, the character, the the editing. It's wow. It's <laughs> wow. The title <laughs> sequence and I think like the 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 dream attack in the initial climax of this, like the beginning of the climax. I think that mm-hmm. is like as far as spectacle goes, the best thing he's ever done. And I think. Maybe like the only times I've seen him as a stronger director are yeah. like the montage sequences in Millennium Actress or the, the like last 10 minutes of Fear of a Direct Hit. Like this mm-hmm. is in his this is his sizzle reel of his like this is 
this is me at my most powerful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. By which I mean to say that like Harumi doesn't Harumi Chono and Maria have no competition with something like that. No. Like, well, they don't in terms of like they don't need to. Like, it's much more of a writerly like. So if we're talking about like the three women who are two women in Cone movies, it's so we start with Mima and we then we have Harumi and then we finally have Paprika. Right. And the. Yeah, it's like they're all they're three different in characters in their own ways, but in terms of the actual uh, on a level of writing, mm-hmm. absolutely, the, this is the thinnest. This is the thinnest. Them. In contrast, I th- but I think that is true for a lot of the characters. I think you're probably right with one exception. I fucking love Konakawa of like of his like hard nosed detective dudes. I think Konakawa is the the best, but also like the weird thing about him is like I don't totally get him he's certainly more relatable than detective ikari and there's like a detective ikari-ness about him but like yeah it I, they never like explained to me very clearly what's up with the guy who died when he failed to apprehend that fugitive like that's not his partner that's just like another guy who's there right so it it's i i, I think that it's useful to remember that like the dream sequence that we see that is like the the events that we try and interpret it's it's kind of a mess it's all jumbled up Mm -hmm. so like the if you put it in chronological order konakawa between high school and college made a movie with his best friend who he perceived to be constantly one step ahead right he's got an inferiority complex with his best friend they made this movie together right that friend dies tragically young of leukemia i believe is it it said that it's leukemia it's something like leukemia in the movies but i don't recall the subtitles exactly but like i do recall like dies young it's not his best friend that dies chasing the fugitive and his best friend is not the fugitive even though it gives you weird visual misdirects that both of those might be it is the fugitive it is well because the fugitive is also him in his dreams like it just so happens that the movie that they were making was about a cop chasing a criminal. Kanakawa then goes to college where he meets Shima, which is how all of this gets looped together. After college, he becomes a cop. And it just so happens that while he's working on this particular case of someone gunned down, he's also dreaming about a bunch of other stuff that has nothing to do with it. Which is why I think like in that first scene with Paprika, he like jumps to the explanation of like, oh, I'm stressed out about the case. The case doesn't matter. Right. And like Paprika saying, like, you're getting ahead of yourself. Let's not jump to conclusions. The thing that he's actually doing is he's combining elements of his modern life with stuff that he hasn't he's tried desperately to not think about for what seems like the majority of his life since he was a teenager. Right. You know, so it's easy to kind of get it all jumbled up because he's all jumbled up. And it, this it was the most recent rewatch where I finally was like, oh, I, I get what this guy's about. OK, I get what all, all of this means. Thank you for thank you for helping put that together. You're right. He's jumbled up. He's kind of a mess. But I think he's also like weirdly relatable. Absolutely. One of the things I realized watching this is he's so similar to like the your Don Drapers and your Tony Sopranos. Right. You know, like that sequence of after he meets up with Shima and the two he Shima at one point says like, oh, I wish it was back in college when we thought about the future. And then he's in his car, like going back home and he has this like panic attack on the road. It's like, that's the Sopranos. Right. 
the way that's edited, all of it, that's the Sopranos. Right. But at the same time, like, he's not like, he's not really like a problematic character. In a lot of ways, he's like the least problematic. Well, in presented within the world of the of the movie, he is the least problematic character. If you bring in the fact that he is a cop, it is a sure. bit different. That but. said, I do like I do like the the flip in a movie of instead of a movie like loving cops, here's a movie where that has a cop who loves movies. And that's sort of like his mm-hmm. like his like repression, right? Is he's like, ah, I probably should have gone into entertainment. Yeah, right. It's exactly. like it's like, why was I a cop? Yeah, right. Exactly, because he it kind of in a weird way it reminded me of that movie, uh, The Act of Killing. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see that? I have seen that. Like the, it's if for those listening who haven't, it's a documentary about the Indonesian massacre of communists uh, taken up by a far right regime that was also supported by the CIA, and it is it is a documentary and following this group of people who were part of the crews that were just going around indiscriminately killing people that were accused of being communists and they talk a ton about how they were trying to emulate Western movies and the director has them reenacting their own crimes as if they were in like the Godfather or Goodfellas or something like that. Mm -hmm. And a Michael Mann movie, right? It's the loop of fiction, uh, inspiring reality, reality, inspiring fiction, which is absolutely something that this movie is playing with. Like there's that one line where it's like fiction always fiction breeds the truth first, you know, right. It's because they, the two of them made a movie about being cops and robbers that he went on to become a cop because his conception of the police comes from media, I think is sort of the implication. Exactly. Right. And his, he's struggling with the case in part because he's, it's not cinematic. Right. Mm-hmm. He never catches mm-hmm. the guy. He, uh, he doesn't catch his man. He's not like a Mountie. Right. And, and that's sort of like his, his hang up. He's not able to like very easily relate what being a detective is like, but he's able to explain to Dr. Chiba the 180 degree rule. Yeah, exactly. It's, he, it's someone running away from what they actually want to do, which is the case with, I think pretty much every single character in some respects. Right. The only one who, who is, you know, unburdened in that way and willing to just be himself from jump is Tokita. Right. Which is, he's also like a very interesting, but, but thin character, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he's thinly written, broadly drawn. Let's oh, I fucked that, that up. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to just give you that opening. I I don't know. Is there is there stuff we want to say about Konakawa before we talk about Tokita or? No, I just I think it, if Mima is my favorite of the women that 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 Kon's depicted, I think Konakawa is my favorite of the men. Interesting, and it's weird that those are the two ends of his career. Yeah, I I, I prefer Akari in the two like cop dad goes to therapy. Right. Stories of cones. I prefer Akari because Akari is putting up so much effort to not deal with the thing that he wants to deal with. Sure. That I, I find that kind of compelling. And I think it's a it's a sadder, darker, less fun character, but it's one that I think you just get a much deeper look into. Whereas again, I think Kanakawa, yes, definitely we do plunge his his psyche. We go to the seventeenth floor of his his brain's hotel, mm-hmm. etc. But it feels less 
well, we just have so much more time with Ikari to like have the cigarettes, have the wife, have all every aspect of his life is involved in the depiction of that character with Konakawa. It's you got, we, we got to go, you know, right. <laughs> like, we don't have time for all that. Sure. Sure. There's, there's a great Netflix documentary series called voyeur V O I R voyeur voyeur. I don't know. It. It's, mm-hmm. it's, so it's very digestible and it's essays about cinema by film critics. But there is mm-hmm. there is an episode at the end of of the documentary series about the rise of prestige TV. What's the difference between prestige TV and 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 cinema? And what is and 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 the basic premise of this essay by the end is that t- TV and films make different promises to viewers. And what what cinema promises is one satisfying storyline with an ending that you love. And what TV yeah. promises is a nuanced exploration of a character, right? And I think you're describing the difference, right? Like Ikari is the yes. is the prestige TV version of Konakawa and vice versa. Kona, you can't expect Paprika to give you that kind of nuance and darkness in its characters, but you can expect it to like give you something by the end that you love about him. And I I do mm-hmm. love Konakawa's arc. In this movie. Yeah, I, I like when he, when he finally has the breakthrough and frees himself from having to be a real cop and just allows himself to be the filmmaker actor that he wanted to be. It it feels really good. Like the the climactic moments where he finally overcomes this fear of going to the seventeenth floor and mm-hmm. chasing like the final chase. Like sure, he it, Cone is kind of making fun of it too with the like the the end shot where he's got, you know, right. Chiba on his arm at sunset. But I think he also wants us to feel a type of catharsis for his character. Finally having this breakthrough. Sure. Sure. And like, I think that again, that line that I referenced, like the battle is over now. Showtime. showtime is true of the movie too. Right. Like we've resolved the emotional arc of the film. Now we're just going to have fun with the plot stuff. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he kills the bad guy his movie is never like an impression it is no longer an impressionistic art thing right mm-hmm. it's now blockbuster cinema so in that case yeah i guess he's sort of like the stand-in for cone in a way one of one of them yeah right which is well, he's got a, he's got a cone on his shoulder basically as one of the bartenders mm-hmm. so cone plays one of the bartenders and so does tutsui Mm-hmm. plays the other they look kind of right like he's them. got the he's got the director and the writer on his shoulders and he's the he's the lead actor mm-hmm. you know and he's also dressed like akira kurosawa which is sort of interesting <laughs> well specifically the scene where he's explaining the like the 180 right rule and all of that he he gets the sunglasses and the hat but I, I think that's adorable it, i love that kind of stuff i love that it's also can i just say this is the only time that someone's ever explained the 180 degree rule in a way to me that like made sense and i've taken like multiple film courses i like (laughs) maybe that's just like a personal problem with with me but i'm just like it's a line what do you mean it's but a line is is like thin i've always struggled with that and then he he does the quentin tarantino from pulp fiction there's the dotted line and you just don't go i always think of that as the old the old boy with the hammer it's also right yeah <laughs> why didn't i think of old boy first so there there you go it's cone isn't even really interested in the much like konakawa he's not actually interested in being a detective he wants to explain the 180 degree rule to you 
That's what yeah. he wants to do on his date with the manic pixie dream girl. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> let's let's drop the cop act and just like let me let me nerd out about some movie stuff. All right, you, you know? beta nerd. <laughs> so I, I guess we should talk about the Omega nerd then. Uh, oh god. And talk about uh, Tokita. Um, truly, truly the Omega nerd. This is really like I sort of one of the things I've been thinking about a lot this whole season is sort of tracking Cone's weird feelings about obesity across his body of work because I knew this is where it all ends up. So it's hard for me to not feel like Tokita is the logical endpoint of a lot of this stuff. And it's a really... Uh, his character, it's, it's simultaneously like it's really apparent. It's, it's, it's much less realistic. Like the guy is like sumo wrestler sized, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and cartoonish and drawn in a more cartoonishly in the same way that Hana is kind of over-exaggerated. I got the same sort of sense yes. from Tokita in this movie. Yeah. Someone who like, it, it, you know, if you were making the movie a live action version, you would have wanted to cast a Philip Seymour Hoffman type, but that would not work because what he's going for is something that you can accomplish only in prosthetics. You need Colin yeah. Farrell trying to be the penguin. Right. <laughs> right. It's, it's comic and over the top. And it does seem like in a way to me, I wonder if someone sat down with Cohen at some point in time between paranoia agent this and said, look, buddy, you've got this thing with nerds and you've got this mm-hmm. thing with fat people and it's kind of, err. It, it doesn't make you seem like the most kind-hearted human being in the world that this is a thing you keep doing. And so, yeah. and as for me, as someone who like, I care about body image issues and representation in and of that, it's a thing that I care about in pop culture, which is like, why is that worth my time? But it is, it, it seems like this was Cone trying to be like, Hey, he gets the girl. Hey, he's a genius. Hey, he's a good guy. See, I'm over it. I'm cool. Mm-hmm. And you can see like the beads of sweat forming spontaneously on his forehead as he's drawing the most rotund character he's ever drawn. Yeah. Right. Some really lovingly animated neck fat in a lot of his the scenes like that whole scene at the diner. It's like, oh, I, I see where you, what you were paying attention to. And that's weird that you chose to do that. And the scene of him, you know, in the scene of him. Like the way that they animate, even like the fat on the on the meat slabs, he's picking up with his chopstick. It honestly, it's the first time I've watched a con film. Been like, wonder if Con had like a weird relationship with food. Is this mm. maybe this is a him? Th- I don't know. I, I shouldn't play armchair psychologist too 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 much. But right, something in that scene made me go, buddy. Maybe you need dream therapy here uh, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I I think we could sort of see Ushi and Paranoia Agent as his first attempt to get this right. Right. Where mm-hmm. it's clear that Ichi is the bully and Uishi is the nice guy who is from the country and is being bullied. And so Tokita is kind of like, what if that guy grew up to be a computer like neuroscience genius? But the same sort of condescension of representation is in there, I think. He's really, you know, he's childlike. He's like a giant baby, you know? Right. And 
I think the the degree to which he's infantilized by the plot it has some it has thematic function that I think is is interesting mm-hmm. but it's also it kind of why some of the stuff in the finale lands a bit flat for me on a dramatic level I agree because I just don't really buy the the Shiba Tokita romance at all nope um Doesn't work. I think it's 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 expedited and it's like, oh, that's interesting that that's where all, all these things ended up. But I don't believe it on like a felt level. No, it's just like, oh, that that's the way that the puzzle works out. But it, it doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. it feels like solving a math problem. Yeah, right. And, and there's something weird in that. It's like the dialogue of the film leads you to believe that her issue with him is that he's a man child. The visuals right. of the film lead you to believe that she has a fetish for this <laughs> that is repressed. Yeah. But she never the fact that she also that. does kind of like comment on his weight a lot. Right. And it's clearly part of their rapport. Right. I don't know. It's again, it's like, look, there's a lot of weird repressed stuff in all of these characters, except for Tokita. And I think it's of the feeling of the movie for her to actually be harboring something other than what she's saying. I just don't feel like it quite, quite lands. Doesn't yeah. really reckon with it. And for, in fairness to Colin, this is me. Look, I'm different. I've mm-hmm. learned Ian. I've changed. I've paid attention. I've grown as a person. I've undergone my dream therapy. I am a kinder human being now than I was when we started talking about perfect blue. So <laughs> let me, let me be a little kinder to Cone than I was sometimes in the past. I know for a fact that he, unlike in uh, his previous productions, did not have an ending planned for the movie and didn't go into it with one. And on purpose, this is hard part of his process. When they were making this movie, he didn't script it. He just started storyboarding shit. He was like, oh, his attraction wow. to this movie was like, was the spectacle. And like, I think you should, yeah. that shows up. Right. So like he's making the movie and he starts storyboarding the dream attack. And he's like, this is dope. Here we go. Big doll <laughs> head, butts, glass bridge. Dope. Mm-hmm. Like this is like the way he made the movie. And it was also like a more collaborative process with him and, and uh, the other people making it. Right. So I, I know that when they were making the movie, they all just sort of like came together for an ending. And we're like, um, eats Chiba, Chiba appears as ghost, giant dream goddess, animate them nipples, mm-hmm. draw them nipples, draw them good. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of like the process they went to by the end. So like there's quotes from them making this movie talking about like, ah, the ending, we just kind of like. Well, it's dream logic. And it right. feels, it feels appropriate that this movie has this weird loopy, like sort of way of thinking yes and it's it's yes ending its way into an ending right um, exactly. which i like because that's sort of the energy of the whole the whole and the, the whole way that this movie shows dreams to work work that way and so it feels of a piece for that to be how dr- the final dream of humanity to to play out mm-hmm. you know like we're not in a in a space where we were like dramatic physics and you know, smart planning and all this sort of like logic. You can't logic your way out of this problem. You have to intuit your way out of it. No, you know? Yeah. And so that's how the, the movie concludes is with this sort of like intuitive psychedelic experience that 
solves the issue on its own sure <laughs> doesn't go full end of evangelion where it's like we're there is no narrative here we're we're just yeah. like this is just a cult shit being mm-hmm. neat but <laughs> but me right it doesn't do that um and and i guess i part of me wonders if this would be a stronger film if it had 10 more minutes and they planned the ending but we have what we have is what we have yeah right um I, I want to get back to something that I sort of brought up briefly with Tokido, which is that I think on a archetypical. Well, so one of the, one of the strands that I think comes into this movie that really feels like it's something that emerged from paranoia agent as well is the sort of office politics. Yes. It does the, coworkers really well. And I think in the specific way that this movie is about the tech industry, uh, it actually is very ahead of its time. Um, mm-hmm. Or I think mm-hmm. it is appropriate to its moment and saying like, look, something is about to come. A parade is about to come over the horizon. And here's what it looks like. Tokita is tech optimism, the human being. Yep. You know? Yep. He, he is someone who invents a absolutely mind bogglingly brilliant piece of technology with zero concern for how it's actually going to exist in the world. You know? And I mean, God, do I need to make the comparisons? Like you, you can see this all over the place of the, like people doing things because they could not because they should basic Jurassic park stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. he's, Um, he's the guy at alphabet who made the YouTube uh, algorithm. Just like, Oh my God, I made the recommendation algorithm. And Inoue is the guy who's like actually in the C-suite at alphabet going like, what if it literally turned people into Nazis? Well, yeah, I mean, so anyway, right. He's making them do Nazi salutes, right? Yeah, I think that's a thing. <laughs> like all, all those dolls and like all of the, the, the people around the, the parade. I don't know. Kind of gave me that feeling like, I don't Is that a stretch? <laughs> Cone, we, we've established that politically Cone was is a little bit to the left of the mainstream in Japan. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect to like say that like is it worth noting that like a, a week ago Shinzo Abe was assassinated as we're recording this right and his his whole thing was he was a a right-wing leader of Japan as a prime minister i understand that he and the emperor did not get along and it seems like his his big political issue was that he wanted Japan to become a militarized nation again right um, yeah, if you if you listen to our uh, Patreon bonus episodes on the Gamera trilogy, this is going to come up. This is a thing. No. <laughs> this is a thing. I get the sense that Cone is not someone who would have voted for Shinzo Abe. Which I don't know yeah. if that's true of Hidekiano. Right. I uh, considering what we talked about when we talked about Shin Godzilla, I think it probably goes the other way. Right. Right. So. I, I w- it wouldn't surprise me if if Cohn had this idea of like, Im, like the business class of Japan empowering a return to imperialism as a negative future on his mind. I think, mm-hmm. I think it says something that you, you see in, in a way in the dream parade on a throne. Yep. Yes. If you, if he has to live his life in a chair, he wants it to be on a throne. Yes. Right. And the concession that, one of the concession concessions that Japan had to make 
to America after World War II was the emperor had to publicly admit that he is not God. Mm-hmm. And this is like a big, mm-hmm. I, like I recall, I just listened to a hardcore history episode on, on the Asia Pacific war in World War II. And like, this is like a big, there's like whole 45 minutes talking about like what a big shakeup this was to their culture for like the emperor to admit that he's not God. So I think it says some that in a way wants to sit on a throne and his goal is to be God in the minds of people and at the climax yeah. of the film, because reality and fiction have been erased, which is like kind of a fascism thing. He's trying to become literally an evil God. Yeah, he's he's a German idealist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's made. I mean, he, he doesn't go so far as to start like quoting Hegel or anything, but one of the things that attracts him like in a way his position we get like basically like three scenes where he explains himself and his rationalizing of his position is a bit different in each one. Like at first he says, I'm here to protect dreams from science. Like, I don't believe that science invading dreams is good for the human psyche. I want to protect the world of dreams and the world of spirit, capital S spirit. Trumpy. Right. So that's one kind of like reactionary weird CEO chairman mm-hmm. kind of thing. The next time is we once, once we start seeing him in dreams, he changes his tune a bit. Right. And he starts saying, well, in dreams, will is expressed to its fullest extent. Again, will capital W. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of see here, this is where the German idealist stuff comes in, where it's like he imagined that the metaphysical world of dreams is where human will can exist without the limitations of physical matter. Right. And I think that the movie is kind of playing on the fact that his, he is disabled and I would, my, my sense is that his legs no longer work rather than they never did. Mm-hmm. If I had to guess based on characterization that this is essentially an old man trying to escape his aging body. And if we want to talk about him being the CEO or the chairman of a tech company, we could certainly draw a lot of examples to Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, et cetera, et cetera, to these like the sort of transhumanist movement mm-hmm. in the sort of upper echelon of the tech world. And I think that this guy fits right into that. Mm-hmm. The third time he explains his motivations is after Osanai dies and dies in a dream, which causes death to become real as like an object in reality. He fuses with both the world of dreams and the world of death and comes to the conclusion, this sort of Schopenhauer uh, conclusion of, well, to solve this, I have to negate everything, bring everything into the world of death and into the world of dreams, solve all contradictions Mm-hmm. and plunge the world into despair whereas i think like and again like well we talked about how freud was not like a, was not like uh is not like the best like cornerstone for like actual psychology in the modern world but it does i think it very much does say something that my reading of this movie is that colin looks at Inoue and says no nah, bro you just want to walk this is yeah. like really it and maybe and maybe not be you're, a closeted gay man and you we don't wish know. you were young right well, yes we we went to the exact same place right it it does, it, which is weird because it. This is the first time I think that Cones really had like a, a pair of like almost Disney queer coded villains. Well, it's a, it's a trio, because um, in a way, uh, Osanai and Himaru. 
No, it's it, like it's it's explicitly said. So they go to Himuru's apartment. Osanai passes pictures of the two of them as as well as like gay porn, essentially. Oh, um, you're right. You're the, right. The magazine shelf and like has this like eh, grimace. And then Paprika points out like you sold your body to get a DC mini. Right. My my interpretation of that is not that he is not that Himuro is gay. Is that like, you know, he's been living inside his mind for years. I see. In either case, because we don't really know anything about Himuro as a character. No, he's much like in his he's dream. Not, he's a hollow shell. He's a puppet. Yeah. Yep. He's, you know, but, he's got so his fist means... up his ass and is making his mouth move. Yeah. <laughs> that one was intentional. <laughs> I thought about that one. Good. <laughs> yeah. To which to say, like, yes, you're right. This, these, and this is, I'm, I'm glad this came up because it's something that I didn't catch at all the first time I saw this movie. Right. It's kind of glaringly obvious now, which is that uh, this movie definitely queer codes the hell out of its villains. Which is weird because, like, so much, so much earlier stuff in in Cone is actually like remarkably like kind to the LGBTQ community, considering the time and the medium and the culture. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about Zebra in happy family planning right it, right it seems like yeah. there's a lot of sorrow in in cone's heart for like man look at this closeted gay dude all yeah. his, his he feels as though his only recourse in this society is to kill himself isn't that a shame whereas this is kind of like oh, weird old gay guy doing weird yeah. stuff i think i've got two interpretations my un my uncharitable interpretation is that this movie came out in two thousand six, and that Cone is an edgy Gen X guy. <laughs> Fair. Um, my charitable interpretation is that this movie is all all about repression mm-hmm. and all about repressed and redirected desires. And so it, it you know I got a, watching it again this time. I was thinking a lot about Mishima, the playwright, coup attempter, um, and hard right wing. On both of those, yeah, <laughs> in both of those mediums, <laughs> weird. Um, now that is, oh my god, we could, we could do a whole thing on Mishima, but go on. Uh, I, I'd be inter- I might, I might be interested in doing that. Um, we could talk about the movie. That'd be, that'd be cool. Maybe save that for the Patreon. Um, yeah, maybe we are. We're doing a lot of Patreon plugs this episode. Continue, Mishima. Yeah, a uh, guy who um, gutted himself with a sword after failing to reinstate the emperor as you know god sovereign of japan on tv um, on tv mm-hmm. you know yeah, it's, it's made, made a speech didn't go over well killed himself in ritual suicide afterwards and admittedly my understanding of his life comes in large part due to the film mishima life in four chapters so which i haven't seen i think it's a masterpiece i think it's really good okay um but one of the themes that it touches on a lot is the degree to which like it kind of tries to to make complex the relationship between Mishima's fascination with the military, his sort of latent fascism, and his obsession with, like, young male bodies. Like, which is the chicken and which is the egg here mm-hmm. is, I think, the idea that's being played with. And... I think, you know, I, I make a lot of sort of like half-hearted references to Gravity's Rainbow. I'm going all the way in and saying this, this movie has a lot of Gravity's Rainbow in it. Because the way that Gravity's Rainbow presents the upper class of the military in England and Germany is that there absolutely is this obsession with like the older men kind of lusting after the younger 
male form. And I don't think it's by accident. I, I think it does say something kind of politically or psychologically interesting to have this guy have that as part of his character. But it also does it played so quickly and so lightly. It does kind of reduce itself in the context of the film to this kind of queer coded thing, queer coded villainry mm-hmm. that we discussed previously. I wonder if this is something that is a holdover from the book. Mm-hmm. That seems possible. This seems like a very 1993 sci-fi villain thing to happen, but I yeah. haven't read the book. Yeah. I haven't. Had, sorry. I've, I've actually read like a few books for this series, but I wasn't able to get an English language version of Paprika, the book. Right. While I have gravity's rainbow on the tip of my tongue, the novel literally starts with a character whose power is the ability to go into other people's dreams and affect them. Mm-hmm. And there's a way to read the entire novel as this character invading someone's dream or concocting a dream for someone. Uh, and there, the long stretches, the way that it, the, the book is able to kind of take a lot of the stylistic daring cuts and transitions from one scene to another is because the, essentially the narrator is hopping from one dream to another using a character's subconscious as a way to redirect the narrative to their part of Europe and all that kind of stuff. So I think pirate Prentice is essentially the paprika of, uh, of gravity's rainbow. I think there are some like weird deep tissue connections between that book and this movie that underscore a lot. If you've, if you've read one and you haven't seen the other, if you've watched one, you haven't read the other, try it, man. That's all I'm saying. I, I don't have a quote from Khan proving that. I was able to ascertain, not with a direct quote, but it's been reported about this movie that Khan admitted that uh, part of his inspiration is Murakami's The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, which Mm -hmm. I did try to read for this series. Really? I did. Wow. I did. Um, I didn't like that book, and I stopped reading it. I'm going to be honest. Murakami. Murakami, an author that I have very, very conflicted feelings about. You want to talk about Manic Pixie Dream Girls? Good Lord. And that is why I put the fucking book down. It's like, I was like, God damn it. I don't need this in my, I don't need more of this living rent free in my brain. (laughs) The degree to which he likes talking cats is very cute. If I may say, I do think that Murakami's admitted that Pynchon is one of his favorite authors. I would believe that. Absolutely. So maybe that's uh, the I, I don't think tissue. I don't think you get a Murakami without a Pynchon. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. That makes a lot of sense. But much in the way that I feel like, well, Murakami is is fake deep Pynchon. Oh, it's... Pynchon's actual, actually real deep. Murakami is fake deep the author, in my opinion. That is such a, that is the problem. Right. If we're if we're and I tried Kafka by the shore. I did that movie that that book book seemed really cool to me when I was about 20 years old and watching Satoshi Kon movies for the first time. But kind of nothing there. Yeah. Like, goodness, like Norwegian would fuck that book. Fuck that book. That book is sexist as hell. 1Q84 is absolute gobbledygook. It is nonsense. It does not hold together. It's one of the worst books I've ever read. After Dark is half fine, half 
brain bendingly stupid and meaningless. I don't like Murakami. I, I think <laughs> I just need to say it. I just don't like Murakami. Me neither. But he he does remind me on a certain level, if he's fit if Murakami is fake deep Pinchon, who is fake deep Cone. And that perhaps brings us to uh, Inception. Oh, my, I can't believe you did it. By the way, we invite your hate. Humaninstrumentalitypod at gmail.com. Tell me I'm wrong about Murakami. I won't believe you. I won't listen. I'll leave you on red. Um, and maybe in three years, I'll actually sit down and watch Drive My Car. Because it looks... Oh, well, his short stories seem to be very adaptable into very good films because i loved burning don't get me wrong like i thought burning ruled i I really really liked that movie okay buddies buddies friends listeners loved ones ian's been waiting a year to death star laser inception for you i'm going to let him do it okay so Again, I think because I only am doing this because a big part of the way I was introduced to Cone was through American filmmakers that were compared to his work. Right. Um, we've said enough about Swear and Darren Aronofsky. I don't have a funny rhyme name for Christopher Nolan. He's just Christopher Nolan. I, I do respect him more than Aronofsky, so I'm going to give him that. You know, Inception, the movie that, sparked a, a million reddit threads the 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 movie that changed so much of how movies are presented how blockbusters are presented in america um the way they sound the way they look the way they feel it's kind of an essential american movie of the last 10 years like it, it's it's the movie that started the 2010s in america to me you know this is the format of blockbusters and it's you know it's a heist movie it's 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 fine Anyway, what I'm saying is like, obviously, if you're the reason I'm talking about it is because its premise is it shares many similarities with Paprika, right? The premise is hyper similar and apocryphally. We cannot prove this. This is this is not like the perfect blue episode. Okay, I cannot prove this, but apocryphally, Christopher Nolan also considered trying to adapt Paprika the novel. Um, I've never seen anyone be able to prove that. It's just a thing that is said. Right. Go on. Well, it's interesting because when you mentioned earlier that like Cone had been trying to make Paprika for a long time, mm-hmm. that in itself reminds me a lot of Inception because Inception was the movie that Christopher Nolan was like trying to earn the clout to get to make and needed to make a few Batman movies in order to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think my my initial reaction when comparing the two of them is to sort of like, crack jokes at the lack of imagination in inception visually by comparison the the joke that inception literally makes about itself in the movie right right you you've got to learn how to dream bigger etc yeah <laughs> another strangely queer coded performance that said tom hardy in inception monto ben Look, without Tom Hardy, I mean, but this is it's kind of the perfect like encapsulation of these two movies relationships to each other is that Paprika is Tom Hardy. And right. Inception is Joseph Gordon Levitt. <laughs> that uh, is absolutely <laughs> true. OK, continue. Please continue. So 
I, I do want to give Inception some credit because while I don't think it's a particularly great movie, I think no one's gone on to make better versions of this basic same kind of action movie. I think 10, it's a blast. It's stupid as hell, but it's a fucking blast. Dunkirk is a legitimately good war movie. I'm with you on Dunkirk. I, I actually, um, I am pro Dunkirk. I kind of like Interstellar, but mostly because Hans Zimmer's doing all the heavy lifting in that one. Um, don't like Interstellar. Go on. Inception is within the movie itself. It justifies its lack of imag- imagination on some level because it, it, all of the differences between Paprika and Inception come down to where does the dream technology come from originally? In Paprika, it's a psychotherapy tool. Right. In Inception, it's developed by the military. Mm. And the way in which it works in Inception is exactly the kind of thing a systematic military mind would come up with rather than a therapist would come up with. Where it's like, okay, you need to build the space in which the dream will take place. And you've got all these actors and parts of the mind are personified as, you know, basically enemy combatants. It's it's all very dry and militaristic. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, I think, Inception is meta vulnerable, if not vulnerable in in reality, because so the, the joke that people make about Christopher Nolan, right, is like all of his movies have some dead wife that motivates the main character. Mm-hmm. And in Inception, Elliot Page goes down into Leonardo DiCaprio, who is styled to look like Christopher Nolan. Um, it, it is goes a down. Lot. Goes down into his mind and finds a murderous dead wife <laughs> in his subconscious and is like, why is this here? <laughs> Which is the, the exact appropriate critical reaction to watching a Christopher Nolan movie. It's, where it's like, you can't let this go. Why can you not let this image go? And it's about him as a filmmaker haunted by his own obsessions while he's trying to make this slick corporate product. Because mm-hmm. in Inception, the idea is that they're they are essentially tailor making a dream to for a stuck up rich boy to come right. to some sort of emotional catharsis. And isn't that how Inception feels? Like it is it tailor made toward the taste of a rich boy who loves like big guns and expensive suits and like world traveling locations and all of that kind of thing. It brushes metal surfaces. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's a movie about making itself. And on that level, that's kind of neat. I kind of like that. That's kind of neat. Okay, here's my thing. Okay. Once again, I see, I thought I'd had a breakthrough earlier in this season. I thought I had become different. But once again, now I'm regressing. I'm, I'm regressing into my past self as we regress <laughs> into the dream world. And Ian, I feel like you're turning me into this person that has to defend the positions of people I don't actually like. Once again, <laughs> you're doing this to me. I, I kind of want to throw my arms around Christopher Nolan and defend him, um, even though I don't love his oeuvre. And this is this is because he's like the only guy that gets to make like seven figure original sci fi movies anymore. <laughs> so he's like an endangered species. I'm sitting here like, why are you throwing rocks at him? He's the last one. We need him to <laughs> fuck in the zoo so there can maybe be another one in 10 years. Stop. Right. But like a like a big panda. Need to look at kind of dumb. Right? <laughs> Eats bamboo. 
Not as colorful as a normal bear. Yeah, it's in black and white. It's black and white. <laughs> it's if the, it literally was just blue and gray, that would be the Christopher Nolan panda bear. You, like, it only exists behind glass. Right. We keep shoving women in front of it and it's never horny. Right? Like that's that's the other weird thing is like is like dead wife, yes. However, like there is there is no scene in a Christopher Nolan movie that that could ever make anyone stiff. No. 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 Which is weird no. because Un- unless you're horny for Tom Hardy. <laughs> well, and on that note, I do need to give Inception a little bit of props because at least he understands Mr. Hardy. Right. So on that level, I want to defend it. But I think your your critique is accurate. You know, we do. There is a quote from the French issue of Interview Magazine. In 2009, where Christopher Nolan admits that Paprika, the film, Cohn's film, was an inspiration behind Inception. And Mm -hmm. I, I also feel bad because, like we said earlier, like in 2010, even with a budget like that, how are you gonna? You can't make the Christopher Nolan can't make the dream parade. What can he do? Fold a building over. I, I right. guess. Right. Well, um, to that point, he abandons his own physical logic in order to make the movie work. You know, like, so bear with me. I, cause I, I know that the people that really love Christopher Nolan are going to be pissed about what I've said about him. So I'm going to prove that I've thought this through. I'm going to stoop to your level and get Reddit brained. And explain why the dreams do not make sense. In I still think he's a dumb bear that evolution has selected for extinction, but go on. So the whole thing on the second level of the dream, the whole hotel sequence is that the physics are reliant on the level above them of the dream that they're occupying. Mm-hmm. Right. Why is that not the case for the third level? I don't know. Why, why do they go to the, the most, the, the point where the movie truly loses me is when they get to the snow level and it's like, oh, you just want to make a James Bond movie. Like, that's fine. Do it. Have fun. Make your James Bond film. But you've sacrificed the ability to make a really wacky, really, really wacky movie where three layers down, you've got people spinning around like, you know, it's a gyroscope or Maybe it's like you can incorporate that into the movie where on the third level, the dream you've constructed is one where gravity is a ball. So you no longer have to worry about that going forward. But again, it's just a lack of imagination because it's like even who they get to design the dreams. They go to an architect school to find them and then ask an architect to draw mazes. What you want is a game designer. But Christopher Nolan has never thought that a game designer has interesting ideas. So he goes with this like stodgy buttoned up version of what he thinks the the way the world works instead of actually examining who has these kind of interesting ideas in reality. Well, let me let me let me make a critique of your critique. Okay, I mostly agree. However, here's my thing. Um, And let's let's try and make a comparison between Paprika. Yes, let's start and and and, and, weaving them back and weaving them back. Okay, I don't think Satoshi Kon likes video games very much. However, I think he's the kind of guy who would play Monkey Island. Mm-hmm. A, a sort of quirky point and click adventure. And that's in the end what Paprika is. There's action sequences. They're cool. She turns into Shin uh, or Son Goku. It's kind of fun. You right. know, whatever. But like ultimately, it's just sort of investigate the room, which is very detective Right? Totally. Makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christopher Nolan, it's clear that his idea of like 
a dream that is a video game is Counter-Strike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, which he hasn't grown out of this, by the way. This is my problem with Tenet is like, I, like Tenet's neat, but I'm like, you've got time guns and what you do is Counter-Strike in reverse at the end? Like... <laughs> Come He's on. a slave to his his boringness in so many ways, which makes the kind of outlandishness of his ideas more charming. <laughs> it's this is like true. it's like, yeah, you're you're a weird uh, sheet metal gray panda bear who somehow stumbled acro- across some really interesting ideas every once in a while. Whereas if it was me, what I think's missing from Inception is this. I think there should have been a weird Scooby-Doo revolving door sequence set to the Dream Police by Cheap Trick. <laughs> That's like, I want a Super Mario platformer version of, mm-hmm. of, of the Dream. That's what I want. And you could still right. do your ball. That's where they get into Super Mario Galaxy, right? Yeah, so, exactly. So there you exactly. go. Where's Yakety yeah. Sax? This is a man who's never once listened to Yakety Sax and thought, <laughs> Well, it says everything in the music, too. So to continue to interbraid these two ideas, like, so Inception, obviously famous for basically inventing the Blom sound, you know, Mm -hmm. it's the Hans Zimmer score that everyone's been chasing for a decade plus, whereas the Susumu Hirosawa score for Paprika is, uh, I think it's his masterpiece working with Khan. I think it is. A, a 10 out of 10 because he comes up with basically two themes and he right. gets a lot of mileage out of both of them and they're both home runs. Oh, so God. there's the paprika theme, which is the da-na-na-na, da-na-na. It's um, good. Yeah, which he turns into the, you know, high energy, like rave jam. It's what uh, he loves. For the opening sequence. He's got to make everything into, by the, it starts like synth rock and by the end it's like house music in 1994. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that Cham thought they were going to be making and didn't quite get to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas then the other theme is the parade theme, which is uh, another home run. Uh, mm-hmm. Famously, it was the inspiration for the opening track on the most recent Japanese breakfast record, which obviously took over half the world. So. Is that so? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's okay. why it's called Paprika. <laughs> oh, my God. You learn something new every day, folks. I didn't know that. Okay, go on. Those two themes, I th- there's so much in there. There's so much great melodic content in both that he's able to repurpose to create different versions of the parade every single time, different types of, like, I get goosebumps that moment where Tokita looks up and it's like the blue sky behind him. And he's clearly like, he's going up into the clouds. He's dreaming up this big idea of like, he's talking about how he came up with the DC mini and you get the paprika theme going lightly and synthesized. I'm like full goosebumps right now talking about it. It, I just remember seeing it when I was 20 and it felt like so magical. And like now every time I hear that piece of music, it feels like 2010 again to me for like four minutes. I'm really just like, that's really special. <laughs> That's really special. I'm glad you have that relationship with it. I mean, I, I think maybe ranking these things is sort of silly, but like, but like to, to me, like the, the soundtrack moment with, with him and Hirasawa is the is, run. It's the run or it's the opening to Paranoia Agent. But I, I, yeah. like these are all great and, and they're all mm-hmm. they're all going after the same thing. It's a great it's great that Hirasawa's music gets to become this wonderful unifying friend and thread in most but not all of Khan's work. Yeah, you know, uh, basically um, the the it, yeah, it's it's it is a braid that 
does tie a bunch of them together for sure. Mm-hmm. And and to be clear, I I I'm not anti Hans Zimmer, but Hirosawa has a few more interesting I- ideas. Whereas like Hans Zimmer, you know, everything's just sort of like dead can dance, but if Skrillex did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh (laughs) well said um and i'm glad we you brought up the running theme because it's interesting how that idea gets reworked into paprika yeah right like in both millennium actress and in the konakawa sequences the metaphor of running chasing after an ideal that you cannot grasp Mm -hmm. is used to specifically represent filmmaking Mm mm-hmm I'm glad you brought this up because ultimately I do think I've come to like a cogent point about like, about like what, what I feel about Cohn's work as a whole. And this like Paprika was really instrumental in this sense on like my Mm -hmm. second rewatch, because now I feel like I really do understand the man's. And, and what you've just said is, is key to it, right? It's been said many times that like filmmaking is about dreams, right? Mm -hmm. And this and inception are both movies literally about, dreams satoshi Kon is a filmmaker who thought ha dreams mean things you think when you're see when you're sleeping and also things you want what mm-hmm. if they were the same thing right and that's great I, like it, it it's it's a really interesting succinct idea and i love that he was able to iterate on it in in so many ways i think there is if i may be honest a whiff a whiff of fake deepness about that but yeah, not so much as I as I had, not so much as I had when when you first came to me and said let's do Satoshi Kon. Mm-hmm. You know that has lessened. I think the thing that makes it not fake deep is that he's not trying to make it seem cool in the cool sense of the word. You know, it's not yeah. like wearing sunglasses inside ever. Like this movie is so exuberant about itself and. So goofy, even about that own cathartic moment. It so clearly is like, ah, yeah, Konakawa, this old guy, would love to have the Hollywood sunset ending. Because, of course, he would. That's who he is. Mm-hmm. You know, we all want something. And the shape that it's going to take is dependent on who we are. But Kone, you know, he's an old dude. He'll, he'll, he'll include and sort of cultivate and respect. I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling across a thesaurus right now for the word. He'll humor it. He'll humor the part of himself that wants the the big conventional Hollywood ending while also being like, ah, eh, you know, it's 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 what it is. I'm not trying to be take it too seriously either. And there's a lightheartedness and a playfulness about the way this movie presents its characters' desires and how they're about who they are. Like it's Konakawa that dreams in movies. The dreams that everyone right. else is having is the internet. Yes, I think that's I think that's true. And that and that is what is. He lands he lands on that on that um, permissive. He, he does seem like a man who is who was even if he was a judgmental person, Satoshi Kon a little bit about things like people's weight or like their interests. Mm-hmm. Right. At the very least, he was someone who, who thought that society ought to be permissive. Yeah, not don't don't block it up. Don't, don't block hide it up. It. Do your thing, right? Yeah. If you're a Konakawa and you've just got divorced dad energy. Go embrace, see your movies. Embrace it. Yeah. I- embrace it. Doesn't mean you're going to wind up marrying the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. 
No, because maybe she's been trying to be someone else, too, and then just needs to accept that what she actually wants to be is, you know, basically mom to this weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> so, And now we're back to Evangelion. Suddenly, now we've found on this point, Hideki Yano and Satoshi Kon can shake hands, be like, yep, Manic Pixie Dream Girl wants to be mommy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and to that point, I, I actually really like how, and this is something that pissed me off the first time I saw this movie. It's why I, I think actually the movie that has grown in esteem the most for me um, doing this season has been Paprika. Because I, I used to basically be like, yeah, visually cool, story is nonsense, who cares? But I've really warmed to it. I've really, really warmed to it. I, I really like this. It's very affable. It's a very affable film. And I really, it's just fun to hang out with. And one of the things I really appreciate is the big climax is so perfunctory. Yeah. The big, like, final fight is, like, the apocalyptic anime battle rendered as psychosexual farce. Right. You know? Where it's like, oh, like the old man becomes the god of death who's going to destroy all of life. And say so he just gets vored by a like preteen girl. Weird. <laughs> so fucking strange. While Konakawa and Shima just have like madmen level amazing reaction shots of <laughs> <laughs> just what is going on in front of us right now. It's okay. Uh, my partner walked through the living room when I was watching this climax for the first rewatch. And she's like, had the same thing. She's like, what is going on? I'm like, it's, <laughs> they're literally like dream gods. It's a thing. The, the line between fantasy and reality has been erased is what's happened. It's like, up. Uh, okay. <laughs> and even like the, the, rest of the climax up to that point feels like the EDM remix of the paranoia agent climax. You know? Yeah. That is, that is the part of this where it feels like Satoshi Kon plays the hits. Unlike, Mm -hmm. like that was the thing that was new in paranoia agent was like, Oh, you did a weird kaiju battle. And then in paprika, it's like, Oh yeah, did it again. again. (laughs) You can do better a second time. Let's turn like old perverts heads into cell phones, taking upskirt pictures and, you know, a bunch of like businessmen, fighting each other to get to the top of a throne and like yeah it's like oh suddenly everyone's unconscious desires are coming out you right. know uh and or it's it's all in the light it's all up front now and now you get to see how people what people really want how they really feel and i like that this movie ultimately yes it is judgy to your point but i think the thing it is judgiest of the most is hiding who you are and how you really feel Yes, I, when, like I think this film's like message to Dr. Chiba is do do <laughs> do like Amy Winehouse said, and if you want, wear the fuck me pumps. Yes, wear them to work. <laughs> it's it's okay, and like I I I do love going to going to films for that too. Um, not everything needs to be like an Ava that gives me like this weird, uncomfortable religious ecstasy. You know, for me, I, I, Paprika, it's hard for me to say if it's grown in my esteem because as I said, my memories of it were like very murky. The thing that's really Mm -hmm. grown in my esteem is, is paranoid agent, which I was hot and cold on and you were hot on. And now I'm much, much warmer on. Um, 
going, but going back, I still think Millennium Actress. What a what a fucking wonderful film! I like I I I I adore that movie. To me, that's that's the cone that's always going to be closest to me. And Perfect Blue deserves its place in pop culture. Um, but it would be nice if Paprika and Paranoia Agent were held in that kind of regard, too. I think. And if you've yeah. if you've been listening to this, this series with us, I hope I. I I'd like to know if you agree. Personally. I've got one last thing. Let me have it. Early on, there's that sequence where they go to uh, Himaru's apartment and Chiba is, Dr. Chiba is walking around and imagines herself going into this like abandoned playground, like a rye playland looking kind of place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amusement park. That's the word I'm looking for. Amusement park. She goes into this abandoned amusement park and uh tries to jump over the railing and it appears as then it's revealed that she's actually jumping over a ledge like possibly to her death like off of a balcony right is that a jojo's reference (laughs) because old joe in stardust crusaders does the same thing where he has a delusion and he tries to leap over a fence and it's into a bunch of spikes it's revealed that like that's what actually he was about to leap into. And it's shot the same way in the David animation version of JoJo's. Oh my God. Now so that I is, need, I needed to tie us all, all the way back to the beginning. We got to go back. <laughs> we got to go back to JoJo. And you did a wonderful, I didn't think of that, but like there's nothing's more truly anime than anything you can point at it and say, is that a JoJo reference? <laughs> Speaking of which join the Patreon and you can listen to us talk about, Stardust Crusaders, and uh, I believe in the future, Diamond is unbreakable. We're going to try to do it, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's it. I uh, Yeah, I think it's good that we have a teaser for the Patreon here because um, I don't have too much more to say about Paprika. We're going to have one more episode this season. Submit your questions. It's going to be another mailbag, and it's going to be one big final wrap-up. We're going to talk about Good Morning as well, briefly, because there's not a lot to say. Well, how much can you get done in a minute? That is the question behind good. How much can you get done in a minute? Satoshi Khan got a lot done in less than 50 years on this. And um, I pour one out for the man. Yeah. Uh, Please do send us your thoughts. That mailbag's going to be good. Maybe. um, I don't know if that's going to be next week, but we'll we'll figure something out. And, um, you know, Ian and I are talking about. Around three, I'm not going to make any timetables or promises because I thought the timetable on this was going to be fast. And then uh, it was not. <laughs> it was not. I don't know. I got COVID. He got COVID. He had a tour. I had to record an album. I had to put on a music festival. Not ha- Why do I say had to? These are things we I wanted to. Doing. We did we a lot of things we wanted stuff. to do. And we wanted to do this, too. And I've had an absolute blast. Uh, I don't feel like I've quite registered the fact that there's actually no more to talk about once we wrap it up. It is not this, the feeling that I had at the end of any of the Evangelion episode. Uh, the you know obviously that was a it was a whole different experience. Uh, but this has been a fucking blast. I I do feel like I have gained a much deeper appreciation for Cone's work doing this with you. We'll have more to say on the other side of the next episode, kind of the the true postseason wrap up. But um. Yeah, I, I think I walked in the door 
with the conception that, yeah, maybe Cohn was fake deep. Maybe he was kind of a cynical asshole. Um, maybe he was a bit more socially conservative than I would like and had some weird opinions about other people's bodies and what they should do with them. Well, in but, your in your defense, maybe I used some sort of stolen prototype technology to insert those ideas into your brain. But at the end of it, I think, especially coming off of Paprika, I, I was not expecting how joyful and how resoundingly uh, proactive the movie was about like, get your head right, man. Like, you know, it's, it's one thing to struggle over the shit that you do not want to be Mm -hmm. like an Evangelion. It is another thing to then decide to openly want to do stuff and to, actively pursue that stuff and i think paprika if paprika leaves us with anything if cone leaves us with anything it's like yo be you be you all the way like if your thing is like you want to talk about dreams all day if you're the kind of person who does not find it boring when other people tell tell you about their dreams if that's who you are be that person if you're the kind of person that like makes movies that reference other movies you bring all of that stuff into who you are do not repress it do not shove it down to the bottom of yourself be actively joyful about the shit that you fucking love and that is um what we've tried to do this season that's what at least what i've tried to do this season and to get to this place at the end of this episode at, at the end of that movie and be like yeah dude your last movie was a fucking party you know yeah it was and i'm glad we got to have this fucking party with you dude like you're you were only here for so long we only have so much of you it wasn't dour it wasn't you know a uh, clench your fist drama it's like no you you went out swinging and you had a great time doing it and uh fucking cheers to that man it's a worthwhile place to end a bizarre adventure until we see you next Sweet dreams, everyone. Howdy, human instrumentaliteers. Joseph again. This week, the Human Instrumentality Podcast would like to thank our bridge crew, Jonathan Case, Josh Oakley, Four Peoples, and our newest addition, Ash. Good to see you here, friend. If you want to join the bridge crew for $5 a month, join us at patreon.com slash human instrumentality pod. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at another Ava pod and on Instagram at human instrumentality pod. Thanks again for joining us on this bizarre adventure. And as always, congratulations for making it through one more impact. We'll see you soon.